Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 20th, 2016. We'll be doing our light episode today as we continue to work our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, demolishing dream destiny thingy doctrines. It ain't Christianity and biblical doctrine ain't what the uh, purpose-driven destiny folks say that it is. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of really crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open our Bibles, engage in sound biblical exegesis, good biblical hermeneutics in order to test to see what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to and whose books we need to be buying uh, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says. And over and again, we find not so much. So uh, one of the ways we learn discernment is by exposing ourselves to good teaching, good in-depth teaching. We've been working our way through a series of lectures delivered by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. We're up to Chapter 8 now in the book of Ecclesiastes. Grab a Bible, something to drink, and let's get to it. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here so we can plunge back into the abyss of meaninglessness. That is this world and our lives. <laughs> well, not really. Well, yes, really. Yes, really. But, but the word, the meaning has become flesh and dwells among us full of grace and truth. So we have an answer to the questions that Ecclesiastes raises in our hearts and minds, questions that resonate with our own experiences, with our own thoughts. And we have an answer in Christ Jesus who dwells with us. Last week, we looked at the very easy and non-controversial section where, <laughs> where Solomon talks about the treacherous woman, all right, and that he can't find a wise woman, not a single one amongst a thousand, which that's a pretty specific number. 700 wives, 300 concubines... My math's good. That's a thousand. So with that, he probably upset a few of the women in his life. The haunting thing for Solomon in bringing this up 
is that here is a mystery he hasn't been able to plumb the depths of. He hasn't even been able to figure out women. <laughs> well, who can? No. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if Solomon can't do it, we can't either, right? Yeah, why even try? No, don't do that. Okay, so he can't figure out women. That sets the limitation of wisdom. It's a concrete example of what he said earlier, that what God has made uh, straight, you can't make crooked. Or what God has made crooked, you can't make straight. Okay? Um, That when God has hidden something from us, it can't be found out. God has to reveal it. If he wants to keep something a mystery, then our wisdom or our pursuit of wisdom is going to be impotent. And that is his experience of the limitation of wisdom that ends chapter 7. Uh, a nice summary verse would be um, chapter 7, 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, how things work, to pop the hood on life and women and all of it. To find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Okay. So despite his seeking, despite his wisdom, despite his pursuit and his toil in this sphere, it remains elusive and hidden and impossible. The concrete example being figuring out women, he can't do it. Okay, so that's a negative aspect of wisdom. The next verses seem, in some sense, completely disconnected, except for they have a positive take on wisdom. Almost as if Solomon's saying, so here's the limitation, but don't therefore throw it out. Okay, chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? These are rhetorical questions that could probably only be answered with God. God is the only one who is truly wise. He is the only one that truly knows the interpretation of a thing. That word interpretation, it might help you to think of it in terms of uh, significance. And who knows the significance of a thing, right? Things we think that happen, we, we may think, oh, this is very significant, and it comes to nothing. Or things we don't see as significant at all in the time, turns out, in hindsight, they were quite significant. So Solomon has in mind here yet another way in which wisdom is ultimately unattainable for us in the fullest sense, in which we can't even understand the significance of things. And why? Because God has set the boundaries and the borders. This idea is going to dovetail um, with what comes a little bit later, an overarching theme of Ecclesiastes, that God has set limitations and boundaries so that we can be absolutely sure that we are not Him, and that we are then placed into a position of fear. Not necessarily fear as in terror, but on the other side, not necessarily fear as in, eh, I, just, I just respect you. Something of a mixture of both of those. The fear of God. Okay, 
So, chapter 8, verse 1, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? The answer is nothing. That's the limitation. And then the second half of this verse, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So wisdom has some positive aspects to it. Um, Here, poetically, it makes his face shine would be uh, the person who is wise and is recognized so by others. They look forward to seeing his face. Um, And the hardness of his face is changed is more of an internal reflection. Um, If you're wise, if you grasp, if you understand, you won't walk around with a scowl on your face all day long. But a little bit disconnected in some respects, this verse, from what precedes and from what next follows. Next is the application of wisdom if one happens to work in government or around a king or someone who thinks they are. <laughs> okay. Uh, any, any questions? I know um, I've just done a little review, a little context, and then brought in one verse of new material. Any questions or thoughts? Right, don't be shy. Off we go into the application of wisdom into the sphere of government uh, and dealing with kings or, I suppose, even wannabe kings. Chapter 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Um, That verse might be a one-sentence summary of Romans 13, where we're simply told to respect government because God has established it. It's a necessity in this fallen world. Um, Of course, when this world is made new in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be government where humans are in charge of other humans. Rather, God alone will be our king. All things will be just and fair and right. And even we Americans will discover that heaven is not a democracy. And that's a good thing. (laughs) So I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. A general posture of obedience towards government insofar as you can be, insofar as they don't cause you to do something over and against God's word, is wise. The next verse, Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. The connection between these two ideas is really the contrast between the phrases, be not hasty to go and do not take your stand. In that contrast, the first one is you going, the other one is you staying. So don't be hasty to go from his presence. Why? That might be perceived as Rude. Or you might miss out. So don't be hasty to depart. On the other hand, do not take your stand. That is, do not loiter. Be obnoxious. And here's the reason, uh, here's the specific form this takes. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he does whatever he pleases. You know, if you take your stand before the king in an evil cause, you've put yourself in a lose-lose situation. What if he agrees with you? 
great. Then you're evil, and now so is the king. And whatever decision was made. And if you take your stand on an evil cause and he rules against you, then not only were you evil, you'll be punished for it or whatever. A reminder that the king does whatever he pleases. Which is, again, a a piece of wisdom that limits wisdom. (laughs) Or the importance of wisdom. Because no matter how wise you are, Let's assume you're smarter than the king, you're wiser than the king. Let's assume he's an idiot. If you don't show respect to him, he can still do whatever he wants. So a wise man, even if he's wiser than the king, even if he knows better than the king, will know when to keep his mouth shut. Um, Will know when to stay and when to depart. Now, I think that this can have some application with bosses, with uh, those who are above us uh, in in the workplace. This can have some application when we're dealing with the Lord of the living room at home. The wise person will know when to keep their mouth shut, when to stay and when to go. Yeah, I know. When does that ever happen? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. But some some couples, you know, realize, look, if I hang, you know, white husband or wife realizes if I hang around here another 10 seconds, this thing's going to blow up. It's still going to be an issue, but if I excuse myself to another part of the house or city, then uh, <laughs> when I return, we can discuss this like adults, right? So that would be wisdom. And uh, wisdom might even have to su- suffer verbal abuse on its way being wise. Okay. So wisdom, as good as it is, and you can compare wisdom as Solomon's done to uh, giving you the protection of money or giving you uh, the strength of an army, All right, doesn't mean that wisdom uh, saves you from having to simply keep your mouth shut, behave yourself, put up with people in places of power. Which again, here in view, it is sort of a negative view. It's sort of uh, arbitrary. Look, the king does whatever he pleases. Solomon isn't saying that's a good thing. The king does whatever he pleases. That's tyrannical. And why is he there and not another? And why is it that our leaders seem to be, well, not exactly people we'd want as leaders? It's not necessarily just a problem in our own day and age, but a problem that stretches all the way back to Solomon's day and age, where he himself was king. And you recall in earlier chapters where he's bemoaned uh, bureaucracy, governmental bureaucracy. Okay, so uh, we have a couple lines here about how to engage people who are in authority over you. Verse 4, for the word of your wife is supreme. No, the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will, uh, will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. 
For he does not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Okay, so in verse 4, For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? That is again uh, sort of a bitter reflection of what it is to have a human ruler. Um, Bolhagen in the LCMS commentary says, The overall thrust of this whole section is then quite uncomplicated. It can be reduced to this bald statement, Do as you're told. Okay. that a little bit depressing, a little bit bleak? Well, that too, as practical and as wise as that wisdom is, that too falls under Solomon's criticism that goes from the very beginning of Ecclesiastes to the very end. The all is vanity. The all is meaningless. Okay? It is stupid and it is vain that life is this way, but it is. So here's how to navigate it. Um, it shifts just a little in terms of topic and theme in verse 5, although it, you know, it has to do still with the government, assuming you know, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. You know, if you're obedient to the ruler, he's not going to punish you. Okay? If you're obedient to God, then you won't do an evil thing. And then the latter half, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Okay, so you receive a command. You know, boss calls you into your office, Johnson, do this. Okay? But you know that doing that, if you just go out and do it right that second in exactly that bold faced way, you're going to find yourself in trouble. A wise heart or the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So again, we're reflecting on that idea of when you're before the king, before the superior, don't leave too early, don't loiter too long. So also when he gives you a command, be wise in how you carry that out. There's a proper time and a proper way, which we already know. right? But... Again, this falls under the umbrella of this is the way life is and it sucks, but do it or you'll be sorry. <laughs> uh. Okay, verse, um, verse 7. Um, Verse 7 reminds us of the vanities. And that's why I keep referring us back as we look at these verses to the idea of all of this being the way it is, but futile and meaningless and stupid. And here's Solomon's way of reminding us via the vanities. For he does not know what is to be... Ah! Yeah, no, I skipped a clause. Verse 6, I'm sorry. 
For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lays heavy on him. It's like you're going to try to do it the right way and at the right time, but you're going to have to fight against yourself and everyone else to do it. You're probably going to fail uh, more often than not. Verse 7, For he does not know what is to be. That's part of man's trouble. Part of the heaviness is you don't know what to, you know, you don't know what is to be. Very concretely, if you're going to carry out the command and you're going to try to do it in the proper time and in the proper way, even then you still can't predict how it's going to go down, right? You know, the wise person before just opening his lips and then thinking about what he said three minutes later, uh, the wise person stops, considers what he's going to say, considers his course of action and takes it, but even then he doesn't know what is to be. So even then, even if you take the course of action, you are still limited. God has still set boundary and scope there, right? Which reminds us back to verse eight. Uh, excuse me, verse one of chapter eight. Who is like the wise, who knows the significance of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. We never quite meet that ideal, all right? We don't know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No one can, is the answer. And so even when conducting yourself in the way of wisdom, there's an unpredictable nature to life. There is no silver bullet, no magic answer to, frankly, most everything. And the fact that that's a vanity or a problem is uh, highlighted by verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit, which is the Hebrew word ruach. And that can mean uh, soul. Okay, If it means soul, then this is what this verse is saying. No man has the power to retain the soul or power over the day of death. Then they're parallel statements, you see. When God snaps his fingers and says, it's your last day, you can't, you know, and your soul's separating from your body, you can't be like, ah, <laughs> come back. And you don't have power over your soul. You don't have power over the day of your death. So you're subject to it. It's futile. Right? You're not in control, which is obnoxious. Okay? So um, that would be the first way of reading it. The second way of reading it may even be better in terms of connecting it to the preceding verse. The second way of understanding Ruach is uh, wind. Jesus plays with this in John 3, where uh, in Hebrew it would be Ruach, in Greek it would be Pneuma. And those would be equivalents of each other. And he uses that word Pneuma as he's dialoguing with Nicodemus, both as meaning the spirit, the soul, all right, and as meaning uh, uh, wind. Wind. The wind blows, right? You know not where. Uh, the pneuma blows. The ruach blows. Okay, so here this English word, the spirit, could also mean the wind. Now, if we read that in context with, chap- with verse 7, look at this. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? In other words, he's impotent to know the future or even the reaction to his wise actions. No man has power to retain the wind. No man can control the wind, let alone any other part of this world or life, or power over the day of death. 
And so it would be sort of a building idea up into the finale. You can't even control the day you die. There is no discharge from war. Okay, the analogy is sort of like when your country's at war and you've been conscripted, you don't just to get out because you feel like it. Okay? And applied to this life, there's no discharge from the strife or you're just bound to it. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So you say this whole wisdom thing, this whole trying to live my life righteously thing, eh, it's just not working out. And I see a lot of people who live wickedly and, and or foolishly and, you know, seems to work out for them every bit as well as it's working out for me. I'm going to give it a try. Um, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. As if Solomon is saying, well, go ahead. You're going to end up the same place. Okay? By being wicked or, or having that as your toil, as your pursuit, it's still not going to deliver you from death or from all the problems of this world, all the confines that God has set upon it. And we would call those confines the curse. We're just parsing that out here with Solomon. Alright, so again, we see the vanities that man can't know the immediate future or even the effect of his actions. We can't control the wind or anything else. We can't control our souls or retain it if God says... Your time's up. We have no power over the day of death. Despite what we tell ourselves, and despite the media that we basically hire as our drug pushers, and the drug they sell is, let me tell you how to live your best life now. Here's the diet you need. Here's the exercise you need. Here's the thoughts you need to be thinking, the attitudes you need to be having. In so doing these things, you will discover the secret to stave off the day of death, to extend your life. Right? Um, For example, concretely, this last week, yeah, yeah, I heard uh, that... um, if those who a recent study shows that those who drink more than four cups of coffee a day have a twenty percent less likely chance of getting melanoma, <laughs> I told that to my wife, just deadpan, straight face, to see what she would say. And as a physician's assistant, she just goes, "You know what melanoma is, don't you?" <laughs> I love it. Okay, so we are told, we, and we are just put on this yo-yo, aren't we? You know, whiskey is bad, drugs are bad. Take whiskey, take drugs. It reduces, you know, uh, heart disease and gingivitis and everything. Else. Okay, um, if you watch enough TV, uh, you will see um, an ad. The, the most recent one that I've seen was Yaz, birth control. Every other commercial, I was trying to watch the People's Court one afternoon, and every other commercial was Yaz. Okay, birth control, women leaping all over in in brightly clad clothing. It was obnoxious on many levels. All right. Then, I, you know, so I just harbor a grudge against Yaz quietly, and a year or two goes by, and I'm watching the same channel, looking, you know, for the people's court, as I do. And 
lo and behold, what do I see? The law firm of so-and-so s so-and-so. And why do they want you to call? If you've taken Yaz within the last two years... <sighs> what do I do? Do I have a glass of wine every night for my heart? Do I, have, do I not? Okay. In the end, I'm going to just to, get, just to like get myself comfortably numb from all the idiocy. Okay. Maybe two. I don't really care if it's healthy or not. We've gotten this ridiculous idea that death is such a weak force and such a weak thing that we can simply stave it off with enough leafy greens. Right? Here comes the Grim Reaper. What are you going to do? Spinach! Right? So it's one thing to be a good steward of your body and your health, and that's fine and well and biblical. And it's another thing altogether, according to Jesus, that to think by worry you can add one second to your life. Right? And that's what Solomon is teaching us here. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's lecture on the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins.
Who are you that you would disrupt our worship of our most holy Lord Jesus Christ? What? I I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear you. Time travel has a weird way of messing with my eardrums. I asked you who you were. And what is this about time travel? Uh oh yeah, about that. What year is this? He doesn't seem too bright, does he? Silence. The year is 65 AD, and I ask you once again, who are you? The name's Haas, Peter Haas. I see. Would you kindly leave our presence so that we can continue with the Lord's Supper? Oh yeah, sure. I'll be out of your hair and... Wait, wait, wait a minute. Did you, did you say Lord's Supper? Told you he wasn't bright. Silence. Yes, I did say Lord's Supper. And this is, in fact, 65 A.D.? Again, yes. Well, that doesn't make any sense. What doesn't make any sense? Well, I guess it would make sense that I would stumble into a house of Pharisees. Excuse me? Well, yeah. It's common knowledge that communion was never meant to be part of a church service. I don't follow. Well, you see, it's stuff like communion and expository Bible teaching that gets in the way of people really experiencing Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry, but are you a Gnostic? No, I'm a pastor. That doesn't answer the question. But I'm a pastor. Well, Pastor Haas, it seems as though you have your facts wrong. During services, like the one before you, we as a congregation worship Jesus Christ and receive his gifts of forgiveness and mercy. What more is there to want? Oh, I get it. You're all a bunch of Judaizers. Uh, we're Gentiles. None of us here are Jewish. Well, um, uh, at least you guys don't use music in church. I don't know what devilry has bewitched your senses. We always sing hymns and psalms during the service. Hey, that's not right. Music isn't supposed to be part of the church until the 1700s. Not as sharp as a soggy pancake, that one is. I'm beginning to agree with you. Are we to believe that you're a pastor? Uh, duh! Well, you're easily one of two things. You're either one, a heretic hell-bent on destroying Christianity with your vile filth, or you're simply a buffoon who is having delusions of grandeur. You're just a hater! Oh, but am I? You claim to be a pastor in the service of Jesus Christ, and yet you seem to know nothing of our early church history or of the means of grace so blatantly set forth by Jesus and his disciples? Uh, well, uh... Where'd you get your seminarian degree from? <laughs> DeVry. Silence! No, Cassius, I believe that school, as poor as it is in its educational content, would have at least taught him something. How do you ever expect to experience Jesus if you're just a bunch of close-minded... Enough! We've had our fill of your empty words. You obviously know nothing about the way, and are hereby expelled from our midst. But I'm published! Any lump of flesh with half a pulse can vomit meaningless words onto parchment. It's the substance of the words that makes the difference and are what's important. Your lack of knowledge is astounding. Now again, leave. Who do you think you are that you can boss me around? I'm a vision-casting leader in the church of the 21st century. This is a Christian church of Berea. I think I can speak for all witnesses here that you are not worthy of the title of pastor. I wouldn't even hire you for a stable boy. Now get out of the church, you wolf in sheep's clothing.
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause to become supremely dissatisfied with your dream, destiny, purpose, church. And for good reason. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring... Fighting for the Faith to you and the world, you can partner with us. It's a partnership here at Fighting for the Faith. And the way you do that is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank, by the way. And uh, the way you pick your rank, it's right there on the website. You know, you click join our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Great way to support us. If you haven't already joined our crew, please uh, please do so. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture on Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. That makes us so uncomfortable that God is in control of something so intimate that He is in control of me and my body. That is just obnoxious. 
So I'm going to tell myself and convince myself that I can do all these things to stave it off. Solomon says, baloney. So does Jesus. <laughs> it's not how it works. Okay. Ah, the worst, the worst. Sorry, I'll move on. The worst are the stupid Jesus diets. You know, like, eating the biblical way. Uh, the diet Jesus would approve of. Um, yeah, I mean, people, people make money selling books like these. Ah, don't get suckered into that, please. Okay, so all of this is just the way it is, and we're constantly, remember the idea of wisdom in Solomon is it's wisdom under the sun. In other words, it's the courage to see with your eyes open and call a thing what it is. Luther calls that being a theologian of the cross. All right? So to be wise in the way of Solomon, wise in the way of Ecclesiastes, is to recognize the lies we tell ourselves, the lies that um, we believe, and to uproot them and say, baloney, and instead to hold in front of our eyes the uncomfortable truth, and it is an uncomfortable truth, that you can't do anything to change the moment that your life is going to end, God has ordained it, it's set, it's not in your power, it's not in your control, and that is uncomfortable. But that is precisely where God wants to bring us. So that when we face death, we're not thinking, oh gosh, I need some more vegetables. When we face death, we're thinking, I've got, I've got business with Him I have to deal with. Because first of all, He's the one that's making the decision, and second of all, when I do die, I assume He's going to have a word or two for me. You see, so God would use Ecclesiastes in this way of thinking to strip away the comfortable lies, the anesthetization that we do to ourselves so that we don't have to feel the existential pain of reality. And God would say, no, feel that pain. Face reality. Face me. Terrifying and uncomfortable and, you know, just easier to stop smoking. But that is precisely where God wants us to be so that then He can speak to us of Christ. Right? That which takes away our sin. He who takes away our death. He who promises to set this world right and all that He has made crooked to straighten it out. Right? In the new heavens and the new earth. Answers. Answers. And not just future answers, but present answers too. Like, okay, this is how you navigate life. When these things come up, you know, Solomon can give you general principles, but at the end of the day, you need to know it's all stupid and you need to trust in me. Okay? So much easier to uh, go on a diet, right? Then to pray, which that's hard. But it's so much easier to do that than to pray to God on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Okay. And what that does too is shows us our sin and our futility and precisely what we have to be saved from. That the messed upness of the world isn't just something that's out there, but the messed upness of the world is something that's right here. Okay. And so when Christ comes into our flesh and into our world... He means to change that, and we see that through His cross, we see that through His resurrection, we see that through His uh, promise to come. 
But then we see him breaking into the here and now of our lives in divine service. Wherever his word is spoken there, he is speaking it. He says to his pastors, whoever hears you is hearing me. It is his body and his blood that we partake of in the supper. He is here for us. As Jesus says, this, this bread right here in your hand is my body. This wine in this cup right here is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And by the way, forgiveness of sins is the most important thing, but it's not the only thing. Because it means forgiveness, life, salvation, Christ dwelling with you, wisdom incarnate now joining himself to you so that you are flesh of his flesh, blood of his blood. All right? And that changes everything. That changes everything. You know, because it allows us again to be people who uh, can speak the questions of Ecclesiastes and answer with the concrete reality of Christ. He is our meaning. Okay, so um, let's see where I left off. Yeah, well, that's a good break. Any questions or comments? Terry. Oh, one second. We're going to, right here, we're going to need a mic. Um, I have a question. I, I understand what you're saying about, you know, everything in the world is. Well, actually, the question is in your sermon today, you said we're given too much. We aren't giving, given just what we can handle. So we're given too much. So how, what is our response to when we think we're given too much? <laughs> because uh, the Christian world out there tells us, oh, yeah, you're not going to get more than you can handle. Yeah, which I think is a fib. And it was enlightening when you said that today. So I just need you to respond to that. Sure. Um, well, without, without going way down the tangent... There's a, there's a presentation by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You can find it on Issues, etc., where he addresses that verse. Forget which Corinthians it's in. It's misinterpreted and twisted to be the mantra that God will never give you more than you can handle. Which, you're, if you're even remotely acquainted with the biblical narrative, you'll understand right away if you think critically that's just not true. Every story in the Bible is God giving these poor people more than they can handle. You know, it's God testing them. You don't get tested by in the wilderness, for example, by uh, God giving you everything you need and giving you nothing you can't handle. Right? Instead, He lets them get get hungry, lets them get thirsty. Now, what are they going to do? Right? Um. And it's and it's more than that. I mean, just in terms of our own in terms of our own experience, God is constantly giving things we can't handle. What you think you can handle marriage? Okay. You think you can handle kids? You've either never had them or you've grown too old to forget. Want to borrow a couple? Every vocation God calls us to is is uncomfortable. That's that's in a way what Solomon's getting at. You know, you're gonna go to the king and you're gonna have to conform yourself, change yourself, alter your behavior so that you don't get your head cut off. Right? 
Which is, in a, which is in essence is saying, you can't handle this on your own. You have to have advice. You have, I think the premise is that we can't handle much of anything on our own. And that God sets us in all sorts of things that we can't handle it, so that we have to turn and cry out to Him to handle it on our behalf. In this way, I mean, Luther's way ahead of us on this. When, when, um, when discussing what sins we should confess before God, you know, one way to do it, I think, I think a really good way to do it is work on committing the Ten Commandments to memory, right? And then sort of just, depending on how much time you have, go through them, looking at your life and whatever uh, they bring up in your conscience, confess those to God, receive His absolution, Take advantage of doing that in front of a pastor. That'd be great. Um, that's biblical. That's Lutheran. Um, the other way, though, that you can view your life, and Luther mentions this, is to consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a wife, or a worker? What's Luther getting at? Vocation. Vocation is all the law you need. <laughs> You don't need the Ten Commandments, per se, okay, to examine yourself. You can simply say, what am I? What? Well, I'm a Christian. How's that working out for you? Oh, gosh. Okay, let's start with something easier. I am a husband. Oh, my. Do I have anything to confess there? I am a father. Oh, my. Do I have anything to confess there? I am a worker. Do I have anything to confess there? In other words, vocation itself is something you can't handle and something that is going to constantly be pointing out to you how not up to the task or not willing to complete the task you are. And my connection with that was Jonah, who's just flat not willing to do what God has called him to do. Right? I mean, not that we're ever like that. Okay. So this idea that God won't ever give you anything you can't... Well, He won't give, ever give you anything that disturbs or upsets your faith. Nonsense. Nonsense. Um, I mean, David found himself questioning his faith, praying that God would not take away the Holy Spirit. You know, praying that his faith would be sustained. So there's all sorts of biblical examples. Um, you know, Peter's told, get behind me, Satan. He denies Christ three times and is redeemed. Judas denies Christ and is not. God specializes in giving us what we can't handle. You know, it's a gift. It's a blessing. It really is. It's wonderful. I mean, to be married is a gift. To be single is a gift, too, if celibacy is your gift. Paul's very clear about that. Um, you know, if you burn with lust like 99.9% of the population, then marriage is for you. That's a blessing when you have it. But the blessings of God, hmm, it's sort of like what happens when uh, fire comes in too close a contact with dry kindling. Kindling's going to burn. Why? That's God's holiness compared to sinners. So when God gives us holy gifts, the estate of marriage or children, and say those aren't holy gifts. He gives those to us. They come to us with a burning. <laughs> because they're holy gifts received by sinners. And so they burn. They burn like hell. 
And Paul talks about that like the husband crucifying him, laying down his life for his bride as Christ laid. That means marriage is a crucifixion. Oh, man. Let's go back to that place where Solomon says bad things about it. No. <laughs> bad things about marriage. No, marriage is a crucifixion. So is it good or bad? It's good. It's great. It's wonderful. Do you love it? Are you a sinner? Then you're not going to love it. Kids are a crucifixion. You know. Before they're even, before they're even old enough to realize it, they're sitting there in Roman garb, you know, pounding your hands to the board. They're, they're, you know, that's what they do. It's not that they mean anything personal by it, it's just their job. <laughs> so it's a crucifixion. So is it fun? Of course not. But is it a blessing? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. So we as sinners receive blessings as if they were curses because they're holy things and we're not holy. But they're wonderful. They're wonderful. And by the way, you know, the celibacy side of thing and the single side of thing, it's not like God does that so you can play more video games or something. The whole principle is, is that you, you have spare time that you then use that in service of the church. So, um, anyway, I got off on a, on a long tangent. But the point is that God handle, gives us more than we can handle. And uh, the sooner we come to grips with that, um, the sooner we lose, we lose all the, the lies, you know, that come along with that. The godly husband and the faithful wife and all this poppycock. And, and uh, we confess together, I a poor miserable sinner. And husband reaches over, he's got a hymnal in one hand, she's got a hymnal, a hymnal in another. And they hold hands and they confess together, I a poor miserable sinner. That's truth. That's marriage. And that's a, sorry, a heck of a lot more godly. <laughs> And God pleasing than baking it. Which is what Christianity today, especially American Christianity, seems all about. Let me give you ten steps to fake it better. <laughs> let me give you let me give you fifteen steps to deceive yourself into thinking you're a better person. Let me give you oh, the one I just recently got, I think it was like twenty-four steps. And I was like, only twenty-four? I what a bonus. I mean, God came up with 10. Thank God, you've come up with 24. But it was like, if I could retitle this, it was 24 steps into manipulating your wife so that she thinks you're not a complete bleep. <laughs> and this passed for Christ, a Christian CD series. What on earth are God's people doing? I think Ecclesiastes needs to be like the medicine of our souls. We need to have a mandatory Ecclesiastes session in most of our churches today uh, just to get rid of all the garbage. When Satan does his work, he masquerades as what? No, he wears red horns and he does manifestly evil things and he's around, you know... How does he appear? As an angel of light. As an angel of light. Where Satan's going to be at work is in the church spreading a bunch of false light. A bunch of stuff that sounds right and sounds good and sounds pious and sounds holy. And it's completely what's Satan also known for. Jesus calls him a liar. A liar from the start. All of its lies. Okay. Solomon can help us see through that. 
and then find out and discover what real marriage is and find out and discover what having kids really is and find out and discover what it means to live baptismally in these vocations, as Luther says, to daily drown and die and yet to daily arise and emerge as a new man living before God in righteousness. So we see baptismally that all of our vocations are calls to die and calls to rise. And yes, and that, that's not the silver bullet either. Like, okay, do this and everything's going to get better. No, because there's Jonah. And that's my sermon today. Jonah does what? Oh, he dies and rises. Remember, he goes all the way down to the abyss, the bottom of the ocean floor, to the very gates of death. God sends a fish swooping in. Swallows him, vomits him out on the shore. All right? So he had a baptism by sea and fish vomit. And then he finally goes to Nineveh and preaches. So he accepts God's divine call. So here we have Jonah, who is baptized. Jonah, who is now a pastor. All right? And if anyone's going to behave, it is a baptized pastor. And Jonah goes like a good boy and preaches to Nineveh. And Nineveh repents. And God relents of the disaster. And that's where our our reading today ends. And the very next verse says, After Nineveh had repented and God had relented, Jonah was exceedingly angry. And then he prays to God this fantastic, well, this weird, but fantastic prayer where he basically just chastises God for being so merciful it makes him want to puke. Now that's after Jonah himself has received God's mercy in this miraculous way. It's after Jonah has been baptized and after Jonah has become a pastor. And there he is, the same old Jonah. So we find out the truth is that even though God has His way with us and baptizes us and calls us to baptismal living, to dying daily, we find ourselves just like Jonah saying, no. No, I'm not going to die to that today. (laughs) No, we're going to have a fight. And how stupid. How stupid. I mean, it's sin, it's pride, it's stupidity, just like Jonah. But the point is, God sticks with Jonah. Doesn't depart from Jonah. The point is, God sticks with us. Doesn't depart from us. And that's where baptismal living is. God sticks around enough. He's long enough. He's stubborn enough. He wears us down by His not leaving us alone enough. Then in many cases, we finally do die to ourselves. Or at least make a sort of effort. I kind of agree with uh, Rosenblatt, though he doesn't put it exactly this way, I don't think. That our confession of sins might be more honest if we said... um, and that line, I am heartily sorry for them. We just said it the way the little kids do. I'm heartily sorry for them. <laughs> That's a little more honest, isn't it? Okay. Enough on that rant. Any other questions or comments? Gordon. Uh, yeah, when uh, Solomon says um, the king is supreme, who may say to him, what are you doing? Could that be a lament? Because I know from practicing my uh, vocation of husband, it's often I often appreciate somebody 
saying, what are you doing? <laughs> um, also, uh, from my reading of Kings and Chronicles, there usually was somebody saying to the king, what are you doing? Yeah, that's true. It didn't always go well for him. And Solomon's position here is sort of, if you want it to go well for you, realize, recognize that the king can do whatever he wants. He's supreme. And when he says, this is the way it is, if you say, what are you doing? You're taking your life in your hands. And then now that would not have application, I would hope, in a marriage. Uh, that would be a breakdown of the application. Yeah. But your point's well taken that Solomon is lamenting this. I mean, he's not trumpeting this as, this is the way the world is, and it's great. This is the way the world is, and it's vanity. Okay. Sure, uh, Tom would like to follow up on that. Because we are actually having this debate with the principle of Orange Lutheran recently. Um, it's a problematic verse, obviously, um, particularly when you bring up the devil being a liar. So uh, the hypothetical that we posed to the principle of Orange Lutheran was, so what if you're Luther and you're dealing with the Pope? Um, that brought silence to the room. Uh, what if you're a Jew under Nazi Germany? What if you're a present-day Christian in Syria controlled by ISIS? What if you're an American with a Muslim president? Um, of course, difficult to um, make consistent with what Solomon's saying here, but uh, of course, you're going to have to look deep and decide, yeah, do, do you respect the rule or do you call them out? That's, that's very well said. And Solomon's uh, argument is, is look, this is, how, this is the way of wisdom and the way wisdom goes along in this world. Um, but if it's a word of God issue, I think that's the key. Then as Peter says, we must obey God rather than men, no matter what happens. Sometimes even realizing that in doing that, we're sticking our heads right on the chopping block. But that's when, that's when we're called to it then. And that's where you find out, you know, who your God really is. So, very well said. Thank you. Carrie? Yeah, going, going back to uh, the obeying, two thoughts. Uh, one is that when, you're, when you are in a leadership position, um, you learn very quickly that the rules that apply <laughs> to the person that's being led are as important as the one who's leading. Um, they apply to both. Uh, second thing is um, picking your battles, picking your time, and picking how you do it. And those that's, that is just so important. And... Um, makes such a, a difference in whether you're, you can have any success in what, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to do. So um, sometimes it's, re you know, you th I think about George Washington. I don't know why him, but I do. And part of what he had to do was retreat, regather, mm -hmm. 
think up new tactics and new new strategies and reinforcements and come back at it in a different direct in a different way mm-hmm. and so he was successful then eventually but um if he had just kept slogging ahead against the British with what he was trying in, in New York and a couple of other places, he never we we'd still be British. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. Those ideas resonate very much with uh, the kind of thought that Solomon has in terms of dealing wisely in the circumstances we find ourselves. And Jesus reminds us too that as Christians, that doesn't mean we have to be. You know, boldness can, stupidity and boldness can be easily confused. Um, you know, just plain stupidity, someone can think, I'm being bold. Well, yeah, I'm being stupid. Um, yeah, Jesus encourages us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Yeah, so we want to use, use wisdom to the best we can. Just to throw another thought in the hat of all these wonderful thoughts. And it makes me think of uh, the many times Hitler could have been killed but wasn't. Logically, he would have been assassinated. And the many times that George Washington was protected from death. Yeah, yeah. The first I find irritating, the latter I don't. It's, uh, yeah, it's... It's one of those things, and that, honestly, Paula, is going to get us into some of the next section that we'll cover next week, um, is one of the great problems is, at times, it doesn't work out the way we think it should. Um, At times, God protects the good and punishes the evil, but at times, He doesn't. And what do we make of those injustices? In fact, that's one of the vanities Uh, With the last couple minutes, I want to recycle through those. The first vanity, if you recall, is that everything simply cycles and therefore goes nowhere, never goes forward. The next would be that there's no remembrance. Things pass away. Um, And that there is then a sameness or indifference that befalls us all. Because we're not remembered. Our actions aren't remembered. Death, of course, as we've seen here, is something we're impotent against and also can't predict. And then evil and affliction. By evil and affliction, we're talking about what seems to be an experience of injustice in the world. What about those times where good people suffer and evil people don't? That's one of the vanities. And the last but not least dovetails with it that is, God and his dealings as a mystery, as unfathomable and ungraspable to us, the hidden God. So this next section will, uh, will reflect on many of these and will really have us end with that idea, God as mystery, the hidden God. So I'll be talking about that next week. If that interests you, please join us. The Lord be with you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Myron Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Myron Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and vicarious death on the cross. 
for all of your sins. Amen.